welcome to Hebraic Insights in the Gospels. Join us every Sabbath on Zion Road Radio for a look at the life, deeds, and words of Yeshua Messiah and his followers. From the Torah-centric Hebraic perspective, they were originally lived and written in. Today's program is on Luke chapter 9, verse 1 through verse 36. What were the political implications of Messiah's existence in those days? What did people expect the Messiah to be in the first century? Why did Messiah warn the disciples not to tell everyone that he was the Messiah? How were people swept up by their political and religious aspirations away from the real Messiah and what he was actually doing? And what lessons can we, in our generation, learn from first-century history to avoid falling away after something other than God's real plan? Stay tuned throughout today's program for Eliyahu ben David's insight on these questions and more in Luke chapter 9, verse 1 through verse 36. And now, here's today's scripture portion, Luke chapter 9, verse 1 through verse 36. He, that is Messiah, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them forth to proclaim the kingdom of Elohim and to heal the sick. He said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither staffs, nor wallet, nor bread, nor money, neither have two coats apiece. Into whatever house you enter, stay there and depart from there. As many as don't receive you, when you depart from that city, shake off even the dust from your feet for a testimony against them. They departed and went throughout the villages, proclaiming the good news and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was very perplexed, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. Herod said, John I beheaded. But who is this, about whom I hear such things? He sought to see him. The emissaries, when they had returned, told him what things they had done. He took them and withdrew apart to a deserted place of a city called Bethsaida. He welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of Elohim, and he cured those who needed healing. The day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the surrounding villages and farms and lodge and get food, for we are here in a deserted place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we should go and buy food for all these people, for they were about five thousand men. He said to his disciples, 
Make them sit down in groups of about fifty each. They did so and made them all sit down. He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to the sky, he blessed them and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. They ate and were all filled. They gathered up twelve baskets of broken pieces that were left over. It happened as he was praying alone. That the disciples were with him, and he asked them, "Who do the multitudes say that I am?" They answered, "John the Immerser." But others say Elijah, and others that one of the old prophets is risen again. He said to them, "But who do you say that I am?" Peter answered, "The Messiah of Elohim." But he warned them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and the third day be raised up. He said to all, "If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life." For my sake, the same will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his own self? For whoever will be ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you the truth. There are some of those who stand here who will in no way taste of death until they see the kingdom of Elohim. It happened about eight days after these sayings that he took with him Peter, John, and Jacob and went up onto the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became white and dazzling. Behold, two men were talking with him, who were Moses and Elijah. Who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. It happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Yeshua, "Master, it is good for us to be here. Let's make three tents: one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah." Not knowing what he said, while he said these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered into the cloud. A voice came out of the cloud, saying, "This is my beloved son. Listen to him." When the voice came, Yeshua was found alone. They were silent and told no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. And now here's Eliyahu ben David with some insight on that portion. We're going to be talking about our favorite subject. Messiah. I have a few things to share, and of course, the focus is on Messiah. And these verses 
in this particular portion of Scripture really focus on Yeshua as the Messiah. And rather than kind of reteaching this verse by verse, what I'd like to look at here is the political implications here of Luke 9. Because there's kind of a backstory going on that if you understand it, you can understand the flow of Luke 9 much better. You know, a lot of times as people read through the New Testament, it doesn't make much sense to them. Like, okay, right here, Yahweh is sending out the 12, and then he's feeding the 5,000, and then he's doing that. Is all of this connected in any way? (laughs) You know, it's just all these different things that he did. And when you don't really see this as real history, something that really happened, it's hard to understand what's really going on and, you know, what the story is, what we can learn from it, what Messiah was really doing and saying. So let's look at this backstory a little bit. We have the beginning of this where he sends out the 12, giving them power and authority. And he sent them forth to proclaim the kingdom of Elohim and to heal the sick. Now, what does this mean? He chose 12 emissaries to represent him and his kingdom. And he sent them out. So they're going out. And now where he had been the one that was doing this, now he was sending out 12 representatives, okay? So Messiah times 12 going out and doing this. Do you think that would attract anybody's attention? Do you think they would think, wow, this whole thing is getting stepped up here. What does that mean? And in the context of Israelite history, what about giving 12 officers authority and sending them out? What does that imply? Is not possibly kingship involved here? So, of course, we know it is. It is. But this was a big step forward when Yeshua did this. Because now it wasn't just him. He really was establishing a kingdom by having officials of the kingdom. So... At this time, when this happened, is when Herod is noticing Yeshua. I don't think this is a coincidence, because now it's not just a prophet on his own out there doing his thing. Now there's something bigger forming. But Herod doesn't really know what. And he doesn't really know who this guy is that's doing these things he's hearing about. And it says he sought to see him. In other words, he's putting out a search for Yeshua. Is that a good thing when the state is putting out a search for you? Could Herod possibly have a concern that maybe this guy wants to usurp him? Really, aren't all these people totally paranoid? So, what did Yeshua do regarding this? Well, it tells us about the emissaries returning 
and they give a report. And then immediately, Yeshua withdraws with his apostles to a city called Bethsaida. Was part of that report the reaction of Herod? You know, we've learned in earlier lessons that there were people from Herod's own court who were supporting Yeshua. So no doubt he was getting feedback from what was going on, right? So he immediately withdraws to Bethsaida, a deserted place. And Herod the Great died in 1 BC. Now Herod the Great is the Herod that killed all the little boys two years and under trying to kill the Messiah. And then his kingdom was divided up. And Park went to Herod Antipas. And that's Herod the Tetrarch, same person. And that part of the kingdom that belonged to that Herod. This is the area where Yeshua spent a lot of time preaching there in that region of Galilee. And you can see Bethsaida, where Yeshua went to. And it's very interesting that it's in an area that's basically across the river from where Herod has his kingdom. So Yeshua immediately moved out of Herod's territory as soon as his apostles came back. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. I think he's staying out of reach because Herod's looking for him. And he doesn't want to be found by Herod right now. And you know, he never was, not until the time was right. And then he was taken for Herod to see him. He never was found by Herod. And I believe there is some good wisdom in this, that faith doesn't mean that, you know, you have to let the enemy get his hands on you. Yeshua shows us good wisdom that it's a wise thing to stay out of reach of your enemy if you can. And uh, makes sense. So it was here in Bethsaida that he fed the 5,000 men with the five loaves and two fishes. And we're not going to recount that story, just that amazing miracle that he did. When therefore the people saw the sign which Yeshua did, they said, this is truly the prophet who comes into the world. Now, the Gospel of John adds another detail that I think helps us see the story. It says, Yeshua, therefore, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So this rising political aspiration regarding Messiah apparently was affecting these people in the area of Bethsaida. And when they saw the things that he did, they're wanting to make him king. So 
Uh, he didn't want any part of that. Why? Because he had more he needed to do, right? He was working Yahweh's plan, not the people's plan. There's another good thing to learn from this, right? So, we see here again, clearly, significant political expectations were being aroused by Yeshua's activities. So, you know, we have this political background going on about these aspirations that people had, and they were looking for someone. They were looking for someone who could step into that position. The Herods were Edomites. They were in the pocket of Rome. You're never going to expect them to change the status quo. If you want to see a change in the status quo, you have to basically look to somebody who's an outsider of the system to come in and do it. In modern terms, this is a Donald Trump kind of figure you're looking for, right? This is what basically the situation is. Now, I'm not equating Messiah with Donald Trump, don't get me wrong, but it's the same political mentality that we're looking at here. So, the growing political buzz was raising questions. And it's this background that now explains what happens when Messiah is alone with the disciples. And he asked them, who do the multitudes say that I am? You see, really what he's trying to do is gather intelligence. Remember, these 12 had already gone out. And so they were able to bring back information to him where they could tell him what the state of things was regarding him as far as the people were concerned. So he's asking them that question. So it's not just a, sort of a disconnected little story. It's part of a narrative here that we're seeing. And there's a reason why he's asking the question. So, of course, they told them what they had heard. They told him that John the Immerser, Elijah, maybe one of the prophets. And then he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Well, they knew him better, didn't they? They walked with him. And Peter said, the Messiah of Elohim. Let's talk about the Messiah. This is a book that uh, we have published, Targum Isaiah. And the Targums were paraphrased translations from Hebrew into Aramaic because the common people spoke Aramaic in the first century. So it's just like we have a translation from the Hebrew and Greek originals into English. So this was a translation for Aramaic speakers, which was the main language of people in Judea in the first century. And the interesting and important thing to realize about this is this was like the authorized version. In other words, it was the pharisaical schools 
that produced these targums. And then these targums were actually read in the synagogues. So for a lot of those people, this is the only version that they would know because that Aramaic was the language they spoke. And we should say that this translation is not really a word-for-word -word translation from Isaiah. What it actually is, is what the translators understood the verses in Isaiah in an interpretive way to mean. Now, as we look at this, it helps us to understand what those interpreters, those rabbinical interpreters, actually thought about the verses. It's uh, some interesting information here. And Targum Isaiah is especially interesting because so much of it is messianic. So much of it is about the Messiah. And in Targum Isaiah, it uses the word Messiah in many places. So it labels certain verses as have, where they have an understanding that it's talking about the Messiah. For example, here in Isaiah 9, 6, these are verses about the Messiah. And the Targum version says, The prophet said to the house of David, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and he has taken the law upon himself to keep it. His name is called from eternity, Wonderful, the Mighty God, who liveth to eternity, the Messiah, whose peace shall be great upon us in his days. Now, here's the thing. If you shared this Targum verse, you didn't tell where you got it from, and you shared it with somebody who is a rabbinical Jew today, they would say, well, that's not right, because the Messiah can't be God, because they don't believe that today. But obviously, when you read the verses in the first century, they did believe that. Those verses call him the mighty God who lives to eternity. Who is that if that's not Yahweh? And then it specifically names him as the Messiah. So that is a huge thing. That's what they thought of the Messiah, of who he was in the first century. Here's another verse from Targum Isaiah. Then the throne of the Messiah of Israel shall be established in goodness, and he shall sit upon it in truth in the city of David, judging and seeking justice and executing truth. So what they were looking at from the Messiah, who is a divine figure here, is that he would be the king. He was going to rule in Jerusalem. That's what they believed. And this is why they were continually looking for the Messiah to install him as king. And they had a specific particular purpose in mind for why they wanted him so badly. And this is it the Roman oppressor. The Jews of the first century were not real fond of the fact that they were Romans on every corner. And they all had swords and spears. And they weren't always nice. 
They wanted to rid their land of that. And who's the perfect one to do that? Ah, uh -huh, the Messiah, right? A divine figure. He's big enough that he could overcome the Roman Empire, right? So this is what the Messiah meant to them. And this issue about Rome overshadowed everything else about the Messiah in the minds of first century people in Judea. This was the big issue of that day. In that context, I think it's good to know a little something about history. And suffice it to say that there were many figures, political figures, who rose up claiming to be the Messiah in the first century, revolted against Rome, and in most cases were put down very swiftly. The most famous of all of these occurred in the second century, and this is called the Bar Kokhba Revolt. Of course, earlier in the year 70, Jerusalem had been completely destroyed. The temple had been completely destroyed. And this man, Simon Bar Kokhba, rose up as a political figure with a fervor to take back Judea, take back Jerusalem, and build a new temple. And Rabbi Akiva, who was the most influential rabbi of that time, actually supported Simon Bar Kokhba as the Messiah. In fact, he's the one that gave him the name Bar Kokhba, which means son of the star, which is an Aramaic name. And it refers to the Messianic star prophecy of Numbers 24, 17. There shall come a star out of Jacob. So they lifted up this man, labeled him as the Messiah. He was going to set Jerusalem free from the Romans, reestablish the temple. And he wasn't the Messiah. He and his people were defeated, horribly defeated. And Jews were forbidden to even enter the area that had been Jerusalem. And in fact, a statue of Jupiter was put there and it was given a Roman name. And that's essentially what happened with Jerusalem because of a false messiah. So this helps us to understand just how powerful this aspiration was regarding the Messiah overcoming the Romans. Unfortunately for them, their plan was not Yahweh's plan. Now you couldn't convince them of that for the most part, because what they would have told you is, well, Jerusalem is the holy city. So, of course, Yahweh wants to liberate Jerusalem, right? Of course, the Messiah is going to liberate Jerusalem from the Romans. Wishful thinking, yes, but you cannot, could not change their minds about that. And they were hot to find the Messiah. So, what happened next is after. 
Peter said, you are the Messiah. He warned them and commanded them not to reveal that he was the Messiah. Now, this perplexes a lot of people. You know, a lot of folks think, well, gee, if they knew he was the Messiah, why didn't he tell them? Just go and tell everybody the Messiah is here. But when you understand the political background of all of this, you understand why he wouldn't do that. He didn't come to be that Messiah, did he? He didn't come to liberate them from Rome. They could not perceive of the suffering Messiah and that that work had to be done first. And we know from the record of what we've gone through already, even though he told them, his disciples couldn't even receive that. Peter said, oh no, that'll never happen to you. Right? So even his disciples, obviously to some extent, were bought into that other doctrine, which I think is pretty amazing. A suffering Messiah was so unthinkable in the light of their political aspirations, they had reinterpreted the scriptures to reject the idea. Now, as an example of that, I've got Isaiah 53, 5, and then I have the Targum version of Isaiah 53, 5. Isaiah 53, 5 actually says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought our peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Now, this is a prophecy that all of us are familiar with. And we know that it applies to the Messiah. And they knew that it applies to the Messiah. But look at how they changed the verse in the Targum, which shows what they could believe about it, all right? Therefore, he shall pray for our sins and our iniquities for his sake shall be forgiven us. For we are considered crushed, smitten of the Lord, and afflicted. Do you see how they changed the meaning of the verse? Because they couldn't bring themselves to write what the verse actually said. It was too unthinkable for them to accept what the verse actually said. So they had to change the meaning of the verse in Targum Isaiah. This is how ingrained this was in the people. So when we look at this and we see him warning them and commanding them not to reveal he's the Messiah, and then he's telling them what is actually going to happen. It's almost like he's saying, listen, you know that thing about Rome? That's not going to happen. What's going to happen is the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and the third day be raised up. Did not compute. Did not compute. It's like trying to talk to somebody who believes in the pre-trib rapture about the remnant exodus. Right? We've all gone through it trying to talk to people. They've already got something in their head, so they can't even hear what you're saying. And 
So even though he's telling them very plainly, as the record goes on, I mean, it's very clear they weren't getting it. And the reason, of course, now that he's not wanting to reveal that he's the Messiah is because he didn't want to stoke the flames of their political aspirations. He didn't want them to grab a hold of him and make him king. Because that would just derail him from Yahweh's real, true will for him. Now, isn't this amazing? Can you think of this? Here, a person could be king, have a palace, have riches, have everything a king can have, okay? Lots of people would salivate over being a king. He gave that up for the cross. Because the cross was the Father's will, not the palace. And then, of course, the next thing he says after that is, this is what I'm doing, and you have to do the same thing. That's what he's saying when he says about giving up your own life. Take up your cross, just like I'm taking up my cross. That's what it is to be a believer and a follower. That's not the message people want to hear, but that's the message that Yeshua gave us. So that's the message that's the truth. Now here's the interesting thing. Ironically, of all the claimants to the title of Messiah, only Yeshua actually defeated the Romans. And he did. <laughs> and you know, he did it by totally submitting. Right? He went like a sheep before the shearers and basically said, throw your worst at me. Can you imagine a man like that? And then after they did their worst, And he gave up his life, and they put him in the ground. He defeated them and all the evil powers when he rose from the dead. There is no power like that. There isn't. After this, we have the story of the transfiguration. What the transfiguration is about is a vision of Yeshua Messiah in glory, in the glory of the kingdom. This is how he appeared. He shone like he's going to look when he comes, when we see him. White shining garments. This is what we're going to see. So when he said, some of you are going to see the kingdom, this is what he was talking about. It happened the next day. And they saw him in kingdom glory. And of course, there was the voice from heaven, the voice of the Father. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. He did not fulfill the expectations of the majority. What he was doing was not even on their radar screen, if they had radar screens in the first century. But he was the one. 
he was the son of God, is the son of God, is the Messiah of Israel. And this transfiguration event was meant to confirm that to those apostles. And it did. So when we look at how all of this unfolded in the first century, what can we learn from it here in this final generation at the end of the age? Well, here's some takeaways. Don't be misled by a false teaching. For instance, what we've seen here, Messiah coming as a general to make war on Rome. It seemed like a good idea to those people, but it wasn't God's plan. Don't be misled by committing to a lost cause. You know, many of those people, those Jews in the first century, were patriots. And they wanted to reestablish their country as it had been in the beginning, which seems like a very noble thing. To do that, they would have to defeat Rome. And they thought their faith meant that if they just believed enough, they would be successful. But if it's God's plan to do something different than what you want to do, it doesn't matter how much you believe. Because you're not going to overturn the will of God. And then finally, don't be misled by missing an important truth. And that is what was so clearly in Scripture that they changed. That the Messiah had to come and suffer first. That didn't fit in with their plan, so they just ignored that one. Well, do we have examples of any of these things today? Here's some examples. Rapture animosity. Have you ever talked with people who believe in the pre-trib rapture, and you're trying to explain to them that that's not really God's plan? They can get pretty angry with you. The message I have here is while waiting for the pre-trib rapture, one could be left behind the remnant exodus. Those are going to be some pretty disappointed people. You see, buying into that false teaching of the pre-tribulation rapture easily could cause a person to miss out on Yahweh's true plan and leave people unprepared for the most difficult time in all of human history. And how about a lost cause? I'm seeing this kind of thing a lot more lately, aren't you? People can see here in America a growing divide. And more and more people are becoming disillusioned with the political system. And really, I see comments a lot online where people are talking about a civil war. To tell you the truth, these folks remind me a lot of the first century patriots 
of Judea. They, from a certain point of view, have a noble cause to reestablish the Republic. But, unfortunately, Bible prophecy, as well as the practical facts on the ground, tell us this is never going to happen. And you know, when you are politically attached in your heart to your nation, when you yourself are a patriot, it's a hard thing to give up on that. It's a hard thing to come to a place where you can say, God, I see that you have a different plan. It's too bad, but you know, many people probably will end up spilling their blood for something that's a lost cause and in the process miss out on what Yahweh really has for his people in these last days. He does have a nation. And his nation is not the United States of America. His nation is remnant Israel with whom he has a covenant, an eternal covenant. That covenant existed before the United States of America ever existed, and that covenant will continue after the United States of America is gone. That's just a fact. So, I know even saying that would make some people really angry with me. Probably is right now. I have to tell you, It goes down hard, you know. This is a truth that goes down hard for those people. And I understand that. You know, it hurts to say something like this, because like for someone like me, I know the history of this country. And I really admire what those early believers did in coming here. And the faith that they had and how the Constitution is different than in every other country that's been established in the world. And all of that is meaningful to me. And I'll tell you the truth, when I hear the national anthem, I feel a sense of national pride within me. Probably you do too. That doesn't change what is written in the Word of God. And that's what we have to look at. Well, finally, missing an important truth. The divine divorce of Israel. Replacement theology. The church has replaced Israel. People that believe this are missing an important truth regarding Israel. And that is the truth. That Yahweh made a covenant with Israel that is an eternal covenant that cannot and will not ever, ever be broken. Not by him. So no, the church has not replaced Israel. But because many believe this, of course, the picture of remnant Israel in the final days reemerging and being 
Yahweh's mouthpiece, why that's not something that they can receive. It is the truth, though. You know, we know all of the prophets talk about the remnant in the final days, and they're not talking about the Christian church, which is in decline. 10,000 churches are closing in America every year, and that number is accelerating. The Christian church is in horrible decline and basically having the last hurrah right now. That's the truth. Joel chapter 2 says this, I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood, fire, and pillars of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of Yahweh comes. It will happen that whoever will call on the name of Yahweh shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as Yahweh has said. And among the remnant, those whom Yahweh calls. So, this prophecy does not offer a pre-trib rapture as a way of escape. It says that those who escape will be where? In Jerusalem, in Mount Zion. This is talking about the remnant exodus. This is Yahweh's plan of escape. And Yahweh is calling the remnant right now. They're the ones who will hear the message. This will be a resurrection. And isn't this interesting? This will be a resurrection of Yahweh's faithful nation in the earth. This will be the sign to the world that the remnant truly are the people that Yahweh is working with. Just like when Yeshua was raised from the dead, it was a sign to all of those with an open mind that he truly was the Messiah and that we have to be saved through him. So there's many parallels that we see from the first century to where we're at now here in these last days. And all of it revolves around Messiah. You have been listening to Hebraic Insights in the Gospels. The scripture verses referenced in today's program include Luke chapter 9 verse 1 through verse 36, John chapter 6 verse 13 through verse 15, Targum Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, Targum Isaiah chapter 16 verse 5, Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5, Targum Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5 and Joel chapter 2 verse 30 through verse 32. More scripture verses about the everlasting covenant and the remnant of Israel are Hosea chapter 3 verse 4 through verse 5, Psalm 105 verse 8 through verse 11, Jeremiah chapter 31, Ezekiel chapter 37, and many, many others. Further, more in-depth teachings and study materials on Targum Isaiah and why Yeshua is the prophesied Messiah of Israel 
why the pre-tribulation rapture is a false doctrine, why replacement theology is a false doctrine, why none of the politically recognized nations of the world are God's nation, the history of the Christian church system as a schism away from the government of Israel that Messiah established when he came, the history of the first century believers as the nation of Israel operating according to the laws of Israel under Messiah and his grace, the remnant of Israel, the remnant of Israel today, Bible prophecy in the last days, how the political, social, and religious situations in our generation are fulfilling Bible prophecy, and how you can be a part of the remnant of Israel and all the things that God is doing with His remnant people in these days, along with many other related topics, can be found at our membership site, Zion Tabernacle. Sign up is free. Just go to zion.net. That's T-S-I-Y-O-N dot N-E-T New programs on the Gospels will be airing every Sabbath on Zion Road Radio. Tune in next Shabbat to learn more from Hebraic Insights in the Gospels. Shabbat Shalom! The Christian church system has claimed that Israel is cast off and done away with. However, Jeremiah 31, 35-37 says, Thus says Yahweh, Who gives the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night? Who stirs up the seas so that its waves roar? Yahweh of hosts is his name. If these ordinances depart from before me, says Yahweh, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says Yahweh, If heaven above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, then will I also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says Yahweh. The sun is still here and the sea still roars, and the stars still shine. Learn how Yahweh's nation Israel is literally 
written in the stars as a permanent testimony of our God's commitment to His covenant with Israel. Visit our community site, Zion Tabernacle, and sign up as a free member to view Eliyahu ben David's seminar entitled, One Nation Written in the Stars. One Nation Written in the Stars. Now available free of charge as part of Zion Fast Track, our introductory video course. Zion Fast Track will give you the big picture of what God is doing with his remnant nation in this very generation. To sign up and learn more about what other free resources you'll get as a Zion Tabernacle member, go to zion.org and click join us. That's T-S-I-Y-O-N dot O-R-G. Then click join us. Station.